and his wife had been visiting the church while I was preaching out for a, a short period of time. His wife was, was a Christian. And it was very obvious by the way he was responding to my sermons, I could tell that he had a, a keen interest himself in, in, the, in the gospel, in Jesus Christ. One Sunday after the invitation song, interestingly enough, it was during the closing hymn, I caught something out of the corner of my eye, and, and it was this gentleman coming down front, and, and he came down front up to kind of where you would respond to the invitation, but he simply came up there to pray, and to pray by himself. Now, that was quite unusual in our faith tradition, and be honest with you, caught me off guard. He, he would do it again, and, and then he responded one Sunday during the invitation. And, and of course, those of us who are trained, you know, I mean, when you go to, to Freed Hardeman or, or Harding or Lipscomb, you know, you get trained on how to respond when people respond to the invitation. And, and so I sat down with him, you know, he filled out a card. I said, what could I do for you today? Expecting him to say, I want to be baptized. But he didn't. He said, I want the church to pray for me. Now, going back to my Freed Hardman training, that was not one of the correct answers to give. You know, I mean, if you're not a Christian and you respond, then you respond to be baptized, not to have the prayers of the church. But I thought, okay, if he wants the prayers, we'll, we'll pray for him. And so we prayed for him. And then... About a month later, he responded again, and I thought, well, this time he's going to be baptized, but instead he simply said, I, I want the prayers of the church. And so we prayed for him, and, and it happened again, and after about the third time, I decided I need to talk with him. Something's going on. And so I asked him out to lunch, and we sat down, and, and I simply asked him, I said, you know, I've been kind of anticipating you would be baptized one Sunday, but you haven't. Tell me what's going on with you spiritually. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, Les, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't like me. Wow. If you knew who I was, you wouldn't like me. You know, our, our, our text today, as we continue his story, or this is my story, comes out of a book that addresses that very issue. If you knew who I was, you wouldn't like me. We're, we're coming today out of the book of Ephesians, a, a little book written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, some people date it kind of late in Paul's life, kind of during his Roman imprisonment at the end of Acts. I don't date it that late. I date this book kind of early during the third missionary journey. I, I think that there was an unnamed imprisonment when he was working at Ephesus. But, but whichever it was, when he wrote this epistle, he writes a letter that is in many ways considered a circular letter. It's a letter not intended for one church, but to be read in multiple churches. You can tell that as far as Paul is concerned when he doesn't greet anyone. And in this book of Ephesians, he doesn't greet anyone at the end. 
And so it's believed, and, and I agree with that, that it was like the book of Revelation, meant to go to several churches, probably in Asia Minor, just like the book of Revelation went. And, and we know it as the book of Ephesians because that was one of the churches it was read at. In this particular book, Paul, I think, is convinced that he may not be getting out of prison. This may be, in fact, one of the last books he writes. Now, we know that it wasn't. But at the time, I think Paul thought that. He writes the book of Philippians about the same time. And he says, you know what? I, I'm, I'm stuck. I'm betwixt two. I have a desire to depart, to be with Christ. But to remain with you is far better. I mean, Paul doesn't know what's going to happen. But he writes this little book of Ephesians. And I think it was kind of his first attempt to say, can I tell you what the gospel is really all about? Turn over to Ephesians chapter 1 in the very introduction of it. Notice what he says here, beginning in verse 9. He has made known to us the mystery of his will to his, uh, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, going on to talk about how that in these last days he's put it into effect. And then if you go over to chapter 3, he tells us what this mystery is. He says, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. Now, we read that and go, okay, we get that. Well, if you'd lived in Paul's day, you did. I mean, here was Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, and he says the mystery of God is that God chose Abraham, and through Abraham, the Jewish people, Israel... But now God is taking Israel and he is combining Israel with the Gentiles, forming one body, shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. And so you have this wonderful mystery of God taking Jew, Gentile, and making them one together as the body of Christ, which is what we are today. But in doing that, Paul wants both the Gentiles and the Jews to know how God is going to do that. And so in chapter 2, as he begins his kind of discussion of how this takes place, he begins with this, and I want you to notice, as for you, and by the way, the you here is Gentiles, us. If you're not Jewish, you're among the you here. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Uh, Paul never took a Dale Carnegie course. If you're going to uh, win and influence people, you don't begin by saying, can I just tell you the way you were? You were dead. Dead in your transgressions. Dead in your sins. And you're like, Paul, that's a little strong. But then notice what he goes on to say in verse 3. All of us also lived among them at one time, all of us were actually in that category of being dead. In other words, Paul says, in order to make you Gentiles appreciate what I'm saying is, we Jews were in there with you. We also were dead in our trespasses and sins, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. And so Paul proceeds from there to talk about how was it then that God could take both Jew and Gentile together and form them into this amazing group of people. And so you get down to verse 8, our text for this week. 
And he lays it out in as simple a way as I know how. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And then I love especially verse 10. For we are God's handiwork. My mind goes back to Genesis chapter 2 as God takes dust and he forms Adam and he breathes into his nostrils the bread of life and he becomes a living being. We're God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now this is one of the foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. And yet it is one of those doctrines, like so many others, when, it, when Christians read that, or believers read it, we tend to go to extremes if we're not careful. Now notice how he begins the text. For it is by grace you've been saved. That word grace there is a beautiful Greek word, charis. Uh, charis is just, I mean, it just kind of flows off your tongue. And it literally means God's unmerited, unearned, favor, emphasizing this unmerited and unearned. It is God's favor to us because of who God is. God doesn't save us because we deserve it or because we've earned it. God saves us because he loves us. I'm reminded of the first time my, my son was born. We, we have two sons, June and I do. And, and I remember when Rob, our oldest, was born. Uh, he was born in Memphis, and, and I remember just as soon as he was born, I'm sitting there, I'm looking at him, and I'm like, wow. You know, with God's help, June and I, we, we somehow created this. And what an incredible gift it was to us. And, and one of the things when you become a parent that you notice right off the bat is that you don't have to be taught how to love. You love instinctively. I mean, it's there. And that's kind of the language that Paul is using here. It is God's amazing grace because of his love. Why? Because he created us. He made us in his image. And yet we messed it up. I mean, Paul, as he would write Romans, which is kind of like taking Ephesians and Galatians and expanding it out. He writes it sometimes later and he says there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Same message he made over in chapter 2 of Ephesians. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The exact same message. I don't care if you're Jew, I don't care if you're Greek. We all fall short of what God expects of us. And then notice, and are justified freely by His grace. Same message through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And so if you'll notice as he goes on later in the text here in Ephesians, for it is by grace you've been saved, it is the gift of God. It is God's favor, unmerited, undeserved, free gift to us. But if you'll notice, he then adds the next phrase. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. That word faith is very important to see because you see God's free grace is not, however, unconditional. Now, if, if you have grandchildren, June and I have three grandsons. And one of the things we love more than anything in the world 
is giving our grandsons gifts. In fact, I have a closet that looks more like Toys R Us used to look. I mean, it is packed full of all kinds of things that I've bought. In fact, when our youngest son came to us and said, y'all are going to be grandparents, I went out and bought, bought 50 matchbox cars. 50. I mean, they hadn't even been born yet, and I already was starting to, you know, pack the closet. And so every time our grandsons come to the house, guess where they go? They go to the closet. Pops. Pops. What's that up there? Pops. Can I have this up here? Pops, did you bring me anything? And, of course, we were down with one of our grandsons this last Thursday night down at Henry Horton State Park, went down there to spend some camping time with them. And, and as soon as I got there, my, my grandson Luke found out, and I think June set him up to it, found out that that box of matchbox cars was in my pickup truck. Now, how it got there, I don't know. I guess it walked out there by itself. But he comes up to me, Luke does, and he says, Pops, can I have something from the orange box? That's what they call it. And I said, uh, after supper. Boy, you should have looked at the look on his face. You would have thought I shot him. I have to wait that long? Yes. You know, you can get the free gift, but Pops is going to put a condition on it. By the way, after he got that, he said, you bring me anything else? And I said, we did, but you have to wait until in the morning. Boy, that really got him. You know, I mean, the next morning, he was like, can I have it now? And I said, after breakfast, Pops, why do you keep putting conditions on it? Well, our God puts conditions on his free grace. And that condition is faith. Going back again to it, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. Now, it's here where we hang up. It's here where the Christian tradition has kind of come off the rails and one group's gone way over there and another group's gone way over here and we end up misunderstanding what God says to us here. That Greek word for faith is the Greek word pistis. And, and it's a word that has a lot of rich meaning to it. It means belief, but it's more than belief. It's belief that is trust, that is fidelity, that is trustworthiness. And, and you see, that's where a lot of people mess up. Some people, for instance, when they look at pistis, this word faith, they think it simply means intellectual consent. And what I mean by that is simply this. If I were to come up to you right now and say to you, do you believe that Donald Trump is president of the United States? We would all say, of course we do. If I'd come up to you four years, do you believe that Barack Obama is president of the United States? Of course I do. And then you go back, George Bush, yes. Go back, Bill Clinton, yes. You see, we all know that these individuals have been president of the United States. We believe that. But if I were to ask you this question, did you believe in Bill Clinton as president? Did you believe in George Bush as president? Did you believe in... Barack Obama? Did you believe in Donald Trump? Our answers might be different as we went around the room. You know, you see, believing something about is not the same as believing in. And so some people go to the extreme and says, listen, all you have to do is acknowledge Jesus is God's Son. That's it. And they quote verses like Acts 16, oftentimes pulling them out of context. 
If you'll notice here, this is the story where Paul and Silas are in Philippi. They get arrested. They're put in jail. God comes as they're singing in the middle of the night, sends an earthquake, and the jailer comes asking for lights, rushes in, and says, Sir, what must I do to be saved? And I don't know how many times I've heard people respond, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. There it is, Chapman. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Acknowledge He is God's Son and that's it. But it's not it. Even in Paul's day, James, the half-brother of Jesus, saw that developing among some Christians. This mindset that you could intellectually believe in Jesus but not have that to show in any manifestation in your life. You see, you turn over to the book of James chapter 2. And and notice what James, again, this is the half-brother of Jesus. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds or has no works or has no demonstration of that faith? Can such faith save them? What kind of faith is he talking about? He's talking about intellectual consent. In other words, someone was asked, do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? And they said, yes. But it didn't change their lives. And there are people among, you know, kind of the the faith, you know, of Christianity that says that's all that's required. And yet here's James saying that's not all that's required. Notice what he says in verse 19 of his little epistle. You believe that there is one God? In other words, you believe in God? You believe in Jesus? Good. Even demons believe. But that belief doesn't create true faith. It's intellectual consent. And as the body without the spirit is dead, faith without deeds, faith without works, faith without manifestation, faith that's not trust is dead. You see, when I mentioned our our boys, when our boys were little, June and I, uh, I was in youth ministry at that time. And one of the things we'd like to do on the weekends is get one of the girls from our youth group to babysit for us. Now, one of the first things that you had to do if you were going to babysit for me in June is you had to earn our trust. You see, we weren't going to simply have anyone babysit our children. And there were times that people would offer, hey, I'll be happy to babysit for you. And as soon as we walked away, June would look at me and go, uh-uh-uh. You know, I mean, they might be a good babysitter for somebody else, but not for our kids, you know. And, and, and you know how that is. I mean, do you have real trust? And that's what James is talking about. Jesus would put it this way. Whoever wants to be my disciple... You've got to do more than just acknowledge me as Lord. Notice, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and do something called follow me. And so, is faith that is intellectual consent enough? No. And so, we're going to mark this one out. But here's the problem. If we're not careful, we tend to react to that by going the other direction. And Paul was aware of that. And notice what Paul says back in Ephesians 2. In verse 9, not by works. In other words, this is not from yourselves so that no one can boast. Another approach that sometimes we take, and I have been guilty of this myself. I struggle with this. And so let me just go ahead and confess that. But we see faith as complete moral in our doctrinal works. 
You see, I was raised to believe that we are saved by grace, but we have to save ourselves in the future by works. In other words, you've got to get all the doctrine right, you've got to get all the morality right. Now, yes, if you mess up, you can come, come forward, have the church pray for you and get forgiveness. But boy, it became this, what I oftentimes call basketball salvation of where one moment you're up, you're, you're close to God, the next moment you're down, you're lost, and then you sin again, and so you're back down, then you repent, you're back up. And I remember as a teenager thinking, man, there is no security in this kind of understanding of God's grace. And yet that's what I was taught from the pulpit. I still remember preachers talking about the importance of doctrine. And I remember them talking about how that doctrine is kind of like a glass of water. You can have a glass of water here, full all the way to the top, eight ounces of water, and then take one little drop of cyanide and drop it in there. And what happens to the water? It poisons all the water. And the point was is that it, all it takes is one little false doctrine, whatever it is, add it to the rest of the doctrine, and all at once you're lost again. And so I was raised with this constant fear that if I didn't get it right up here, and if I didn't get it right down here, God was this all-seeing eye just waiting to catch me in my faults and then to reject me as his child. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. Boy, that's, I heard that over and over quoted. You've got to do the will of the Father. And by the way, when you do the will of the Father, you've got to do all the will of the Father. Can I just tell you that that's not possible? That it's not capable for us as human beings to, to, to get everything right? And by the way, if you think you have... What happens is a spirit of pride develops spiritual pride as if I've got it and no one else does. Jesus reminded us in Luke 18, there was a Pharisee. Well, that ought to just kind of let us know where we're going here. There was a Pharisee who stood by himself in the temple. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. And by the way, when I was a teenager, I could easily go in there and replace all of those words that were Jewish with words that were, quote, unquote, Christian. You know, I didn't fast twice a week, but I attended all the services of the church. And I didn't give a, a tithe of all I gave, but I gave according to what God had placed on my heart to give. And I gave every first day of the week. You see, I got it right. And I was so glad that I was better than all of my friends who didn't get it right. And somehow I'd miss texts like this one right here. And Paul says, we've got to get rid of the boasting. You see, there's, it's not possible for us to get it all right. You see, pistis, that is this complete moral or doctrinal works, that doesn't work either. Brothers and sisters, let me, let me just be as plain as I know how to be. You're never going to get it right morally this side of eternity. It's not going to happen. I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in the lives of others. I mean, I've never found anyone who had it all down. I mean, it simply doesn't happen. And not only that, we're not going to get it right doctrinally. 
As much as I strive to do what God has asked me to do, I'm constantly discovering places that I'm like, wow, I've never seen that verse before. I've never seen that insight into, you know, for instance, the Holy Spirit or the Lord's Supper or baptism. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I mean, I've gone to school half of my life. My mother one time asked me, when are you going to stop going to school? She said, you're going to become one of those educated fools if you're not careful. Sometimes I wondered maybe if I didn't. You see, we can't educate ourselves into getting everything right. You see, pistis has to do with growing in God's grace and knowledge at the same time. I love this passage. This is Peter. I mean, of all people. But Peter, notice what he says. But grow in grace. Grow in your understanding of God's love for you and His forgiveness for you. And at the same time you're doing that, grow in your knowledge. Is knowledge important? Of course it is. Is doctrine important? Of course it is. Is morality important? Of course it is. It all reflects the character of God. And does God want me to get there? Yes. But He knows where I started from. And that's the point we've got to remember. I love this from the, from the Tree of Life version. Here, Paul's again talking about his own experience as a Jew. He says, now the Torah came in so that transgression might increase. In other words, God gave the law knowing that once you start giving laws, people are going to violate those laws and transgression is going to increase. But notice the last part of verse 20. But where sin increased, grace overflowed even more. What's Paul saying here? Paul's saying we serve a God who wants us to succeed more than we want to succeed. And where I stumble and fall, what does God do? He doesn't stand there and judge us like this all-seeing eye I was raised to believe. Instead, he sits there and he pours more grace into my life. He says, you need more help? I'm going to give you more help so that just as sin reigned in death, so grace may reign through righteousness to eternal life. Grace is going to reign in our lives. That's how we get there. For we are God's handiwork. Good works? Oh, yes. But not to be saved. But because we're saved. I love the way that the New Living Translation puts it. For we are God's masterpiece. That word masterpiece is the Greek word poema. We get our word poem from it. We're God's poetry created in Him for good works. I still remember the Sunday that my friend decided to be baptized. You see, when he said to me, Les, if you knew me, you wouldn't like me. I responded by saying yes, and if you knew me, you wouldn't like me either. In fact, I'm convinced that if we all knew all of us, none of us would like any of us. I really do believe that. But I'm glad that we have something called grace. God's amazing, unmerited favor where he reached out to us through Jesus Christ and said, because I love you, if you'll simply come in faith, and, and that faith begins for some very small. For others, it's maybe a little bit bigger. For others, it's even bigger than that. We all begin at different places. We all need different amounts of grace. But the amazing thing is, is that as long as we're walking by faith, God says, I'm going to pour it out upon you. And so, sure enough, one Sunday, 
I was told he was being baptized. One of our elders in our church there had, had been influential, and so he was going to baptize him. This man who said, if you knew me, you wouldn't like me, went into the waters of, of baptism and made his confession, and, and that elder immersed him into Christ. And, and I've never seen anything like this before in my life because when he brought him up out of the water, he literally, as he came up out of the water, came up leaping for joy. And I mean, he grabbed that elder and he hugged him and then he rushed up the steps of the baptistry. And I'm sitting there watching that going, why don't people do that when I baptize them? Man! And y'all, he came out after he changed clothes, he came out of, of the dressing room there at the front of the church and literally came running down the, the aisle. And all of us are standing there and he's leaping and he's shouting and he's grabbing people and he's hugging people. Why? Because where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Praise God. I don't know where you are in your life. I don't know if you, thought, if you have thought to yourself, I've so alienated myself from God that God can't forgive me. Let me tell you, that's simply not true. God's grace is bigger than all of our sins. And so if you've never obeyed the gospel because you thought you're not worthy, guess what? You're not. I wasn't. None of us are. Accept that free gift. Put your trust in Jesus. Be buried with him in baptism. And rejoice because you're now a child of God. Uh, we don't offer an invitation, but uh, if you'd like to talk to me, I see Rod up here, Mike's over here on this side, two of our shepherds. We're available. We'd be happy to talk to you. Be happy to immerse you into Christ, into that wonderful grace of the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you for being here. Let, let's stand and pray, and then Blake's going to lead us in one last song. Thank you for your love. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. Help us, Father, to be people of incredible faith, knowing that because of your wonderful free gift, we are now saved and children of yours. We pray in Jesus' name.